Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I am very excited today to have Dr. James McGrath. Uh, Dr. James McGrath is a professor of religious studies at Butler University in Indiana. Um, although I also feel like I should say that you have a very uh, prestigious resume uh, when it comes to um, New Testament, and you did your PhD at Durham University under Dr. James Dunn. Um, he's uh, famous for being one of the pioneers of the new perspective on Paul. Um, and when I was looking at the acknowledgments of your uh, book that we'll be talking about today, we're talking about John's apologetic Christology. Um, there were names like Larry Hurtado and Richard Bauckham and N.T. Wright. And so uh, I, my, uh, a lot of the leading luminaries of, of New Testament studies and, and early, Christian, early Christian history and all those subjects. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's a topic that uh, Jimmy Dunn uh, is perhaps most famous for in connection with his book, uh, Christology in the Making, uh, which uh, didn't get entirely positive uh, responses from all circles, right? Some found, felt he was uh, challenging the idea that uh, ideas such as the divinity of Jesus were there all along from the very outset, uh, tracing development and the process and things like that. And uh, to be honest, I came to this area somewhat skeptical or hesitant uh, to embrace certain uh, ideas myself. Mm -hmm. And it was precisely because uh, he's pretty persuasive and had managed <laughs> yeah. to uh, get me to change my mind. I thought this would be an interesting person to work with and uh, have this. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was a wonderful experience working with him. Yeah. So what was your, your spiritual background like growing up and how did you become uh, interested in these subjects? Yeah, well, uh, I'm, there's, a, there's a longer version and a shorter version of these stories usually. Yeah. And I'll try and start with the shorter one and then you can ask follow-up questions. <laughs> sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, New York City, uh, was uh, brought up in the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, my family background is a little bit more complex than that, but that's for <laughs> the short answer for simplicity. And wandered away from that. Uh, in felt like you know, wasn't wasn't real to me in a variety of ways, and so went into a sort of a more of a seeker phase. Uh, still believed in God, but was feeling like I, this tradition that I was raised in just wasn't life transforming in the ways that it seemed like uh, it ought to be. And so eventually I found my way to some uh, Christian music that uh, heard it on the radio, sort of pretty much just flipping through channels, was on a college station. And people, there were people there singing about God in a way that uh, I could not. And I was very into music at that point. And so that got me really thinking and things like that. And to make a long story short, I had a personal uh, experience, uh, sort of born again experience uh, when I was 15. Uh, that was in the context of a Pentecostal church uh, that a friend of mine invited me to, uh, wisely invited me to a concert, uh, getting that music was mm -hmm. a major influence and was important to me. And that really was what got me started on the course towards uh, becoming a a biblical scholar and uh, studying. Didn't know if I was going to study New Testament, study Old Testament, study uh, theology, something else. Wasn't sure if I was going to go into 
uh, ministry or what exactly it was going to entail. But having had a personal experience, I wanted to wanted to learn more. And so that was uh, that's the, the short answer to mm -hmm. um, where I was coming from and what, how that connected me with uh, the academic study of uh, the Bible. Uh, have set, settled since then. I married a Baptist and have settled in the uh, American <laughs> Baptist uh, denomination uh, here mm -hmm. in the United States. So, mm -hmm. and, and you and you live in Indianapolis, Indiana now. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, j just so you understand a little bit better where I'm coming from, I grew up in a a non-Trinitarian sort of charismatic small yeah. Bible church in the in the Chicago area. Um, so uh, a pretty a, a, a unique combination of beliefs, um, but I also kind of grew up with one foot sort of in larger evangelical megachurchdom, going to youth group and uh, summer Bible camp and all those sorts of things that sort of mainstream evangelical churches. Uh, so um, you can imagine how that, that would lead me to have lots of questions on, on uh, these, these particular topics. And, and really, that's sort of kind of, I would say, one of the main missions of, of my channel is just better understanding and exploring these sorts of questions. Yeah, and that really is, I mean, there's a, there's a long heritage of uh, challenging, you know, Trinitarianism uh, in, since, pretty much since the Protestant Reformation. Uh, once you start challenging things that are traditional, <laughs> creeds are fair game, right? Uh, there's a sense right. in which even you know the modern academic study of the Bible that asks some of those awkward questions about the Bible is asking, you know, well, mm -hmm. we don't want to treat these like a sort of a paper pope, and so we can ask the hard questions there as well. But yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And having come to a, a personal faith through Pentecostalism, which put a lot of emphasis on experience, mm -hmm. I think that too can at least, it doesn't have to, but it can lead to uh, less of an emphasis on you know, particular doctrines, right. a lot more emphasis on experience, mm -hmm. uh, a lot more openness to, you know, potentially to challenging things, right? I think one reason why I've been able to uh, give free reign to my intellectual curiosity and spiritual curiosity, as it were, is precisely because uh, that life-changing experience was so central to why I was doing what I was doing. Uh, if I had been brought up in a tradition that emphasized subscribing to certain beliefs as what was central and what was the core, what was that foundational, then I probably would have found it much more difficult to, to um, turn that spotlight onto some of my beliefs and yeah. uh, particularly the ones that maybe my church or denomination thought were, were important and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. So You've done a lot of work on the Gospel of John. Your PhD thesis was on the Gospel of John, and you uh, developed that into a book. You've done a lot of work on Paul, um, but you also have other sort of academic interests. You, you've studied um, the Mandians, who we might talk about a little bit more later in connection with John the Baptist. They're sort of, um, sort of like a, a small kind of Gnostic-ish uh, sect from from southern Iraq. Maybe you could just say a little bit about who they are, although we might circle back to that subject. Sure, and you don't need to add the ish. Uh, they yeah. definitely are. Uh, <laughs> they are the last surviving Gnostic group in the strict sense of that term. Mm -hmm. so the term Gnostic uh, sometimes gets applied to just anyone you disagree with in certain circles, <laughs> yeah. but also has been embraced by sort of people who are doing this sort of eclectic spirituality thing and mm -hmm. like some of those texts, but drawing them, you know, very 
selectively. Uh, I mean, to be fair, ancient Gnostics were fairly eclectic and <laughs> open to being selective as well. But one of the characteristics of Gnosticism proper in the sense of the, you know, the text from Nag Hammadi and the, the Mandaeans and other groups is that they believe that the material world is created by an inferior creator, right? Who is distantly removed from the supreme deity who is good and um, is at the top of the pinnacle of the sort of chain of being as it were. And so the Mandaeans are the last surviving group with that sort of religious configuration that made it from ancient times down to the present day. And so they really are a fascinating group and uh, they, uh, we'll, we'll presumably come back to this because we'll probably talk about the Gospel of John first, I'm guessing, but <laughs> there's a natural connection. And if I hadn't done my doctoral work on the Gospel of John, it might not have uh, led me to intersect with uh, the study of the Mandaeans and their texts and traditions and practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and then you also have an interest in um, science fiction and sort of the intersection between science fiction and faith and spirituality, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I... I guess the positive way of putting it is that I am uh, sort of an intellectually curious and interdisciplinary sort of uh, academic and person. Uh, the, the flip side, which is basically saying the same thing in a less positive way, is that I seem to have a very short attention span. <laughs> oh, shiny new topic. Oh, let me go pursue that. Yeah. Uh, but the truth is that the things that I've done, uh, the diverse things I've done, have been possible precisely because I've been a professor at Butler University. Uh, both because on the one hand, it's not religiously affiliated, so there was no pressure to uh, hold some view or other. I could go where I thought the evidence was leading me, uh, but neither was there hostility to mm -hmm. me being a person of faith and figuring out how to articulate that as well, uh, including in public. But also because we are a small uh, religious studies program, it meant that I could teach on, in fact, I was encouraged to teach on side interests and develop courses, and then often turned those into research pursuits and ended up writing about them. And I feel like that's been good for all of the various things that I do because I've never uh, felt pressured to simply try to get something in print because I need to, you know, I need to get tenure, I need to get promotion. Um, I write, I enjoy writing. Uh, <laughs> probably people who uh, know me and uh, know the things I write can tell. And so, writing wasn't a problem and I could always circle on to some new topic if I felt like I didn't have anything worth saying that I was persuaded was was ready to go in some other area that I've been working okay yeah well uh that, that's great and I'll also just say that this video I'm, I'm trying to do something of a series on the gospel of John from uh, a bunch of different perspectives um, over the course of this year. Um, and so you're uh, the second person I'm interviewing in that series. I interviewed um, Dr. Lydia McGrew, um, and she has a very uh, sort of, um, she focused very much on the trying to shore up arguments for the historicity of the Gospel of John. Um, although we didn't talk about too much of the theological content, I guess. We talked more about history and, and setting and authorship and those sorts of questions. Although that might be a good place for us to start. Um, so uh, the Gospel of John, when was it written? Who is it written by? Who is it written to? Where was it written? What do we know? What don't we know? All of those sorts of questions. Uh, well, what we don't know with any high degree of certainty 
uh, is the answer to any of those questions. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I have tried to emphasize a lot in my teaching in recent years, uh, particularly as we're living in this age of, you know, of uh, misinformation, but also of sort of ideological polarization, uh, is to, to help students and help the, the public in general understand that there are very few things that we can be absolutely certain about. And the fact that there is room for doubt doesn't mean that there might not be a strong case for something, right? And that we shouldn't uh, draw that conclusion nonetheless, but hold it, you know, maybe that little bit more tentatively and say, it should be open to challenge if new evidence comes to light, things like that. And so I think we can, we can ask those questions and uh, we can approach things like the traditional uh, ascription of authorship, trying to maintain a balance between an appropriate skepticism and an openness to the, the possibility that the tradition is, is correct in some way, shape or form. On the one hand, right, there, there are fairly consistent attributions for the gospel, right? And the earliest of the gospels, you can think of Mark and then you know, also Luke, those always have struck me as names that somebody making up names like they did in later times, uh, trying to attribute things to the, the best authority and the most reliable source. Uh, doesn't seem like the sort of thing that they would make up, right? I mean, attributed to Peter or Thomas or, yeah, mm -hmm. or go with John, but specifically the John, the son of Zebedee. And so when it comes to, when it comes to John, there's a little bit more suspicion because there it's connecting with someone in the inner circle but the truth is that the gospel itself doesn't name its author but sort of writes its author into the text and it refers to the figure who is the at least the source behind this text as the disciple whom Jesus loved uh, sometimes uh, more succinctly called the beloved disciple and if we go by external evidence, right, then there's a, a tradition that says that that's John, even though the text doesn't say that. If we went only by internal evidence, then there is a character in the gospel who is referred to as the one whom Jesus loves, a named character. Uh, I wonder if you could get that bit of Bible trivia off the top of your head. Uh, no. might not come to mind who I'm putting is, out the spot. Who is that? And so it's in chapter 11. Right. And uh, this individual sister sends word to Jesus and says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. yeah. And it's only after that that we get reference to the disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Mm -hmm. And so if we were going just by internal evidence, then we might think hmm, maybe Lazarus is the source behind this. The question of authorship is complicated by the fact that we have a what seems like a perfectly good ending, right, at the end of chapter 20, and then we have another chapter and another ending. And by the time we get there, we're told that this disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who uh, sort of saw these things and wrote these things down, and we know his testimony is true. Mm -hmm. And so whoever is putting this in its final form is, is not that person. And it's not that person, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a long history of looking at the Gospel of John and recognizing that there seem to be seams and uh, ed evidence of editing and things like that. And so it may be that there is a source behind the Gospel of John that goes back to some individual or other. Who knows, maybe Lazarus and maybe John is the, the name of the, the author that eventually ended up writing this. 
there's reference in uh, early church sources to uh, John, who's referred to as John the Elder, who seems to be a different person from John, the son of Zebedee. Mm. And of course, Yohanan uh, is, you know, name of John the Baptist, John, the son of Zebedee, uh, John the Elder. Uh, one reason why we get all these nicknames is that it wasn't an uncommon name. Yeah, it was at least as common then as it is now. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so it could be that that person is the, the final editor of whatever source material was received from someone. And maybe, you know, may have been a, a Judean or, you know, a Judean disciple of Jesus, uh, somebody who, you know, if not Lazarus, then was like that and who would have an interest in and connection with the things that the Gospel of John focuses on, which is the uh, the Judean activity, right? There's much mm -hmm. more, there are more visits to Jerusalem and things of that sort. So the question of authorship, we can't pin down. And the truth is that if you ever read some book, you know, maybe a study Bible, a devotional study Bible, or something like that, that tells you all about the author of the gospel, right? Usually what they're doing is starting with, on the one hand, the tradition and the name, but then the rest of it is filled in with things that we deduce from the text in mm -hmm. most instances, right? In some cases, there are things that people going generations and generations back deduce from the text and it's been passed on and it grows and becomes elaborated. And so I think the way to start is to recognize that even if we figure out a name and even if we're confident and say, okay, you know, they don't attribute it to someone else, it's probably somebody by John put the finishing touches on this. That still doesn't tell us which John, right? It's not, you know, in our earliest manuscripts, it's not, you know, the, the gospel according to John, the son of Zebedee, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, one of the 12 apostles or something like that. Yeah. Uh, although I'd have to look at the earliest, absolute earliest one to see what it is, because those, of course, don't, don't really show up at all in our very earliest manuscripts. Well, whatever we can figure out about the author, we'll figure out inductively, deductively by starting with what that person sure. wrote. And it, so we hear about a John in other parts of the in the New Testament, like in the book of Acts, there's a John who goes with Peter and they heal the lame man. And then there's also um, in Galatians, um, Paul talks about seemingly Peter, James and John, who seem to be pillars of the church. Um, uh, do, do you have any opinions on like, are those all the same John? Uh, any evidence on the relation to this John? And is that the son of Zebedee John? And is that the elder John or, or, or those sorts of things? Yeah, so those two seem to be the same person, right? The Peter, James, John trio mm -hmm. uh, seemed, and then, you know, Peter and John uh, in the, that instance in Acts seem to be uh, seem to be the same ones and probably the son of Zebedee, uh, you know, one of the, the 12. Yeah, there, there's a whole interesting question of what happens to the rest of the 12, right? There are uh, legends and stories about them going to various places, but uh, only relatively few of them sort of remain on the scene and in the picture in uh, the pages of the New Testament. Uh, the book of Revelation is attributed to somebody named John, mm -hmm. and that one is explicit whereas the uh, gospel and the letters that are attributed to John don't name their author. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Greek of Revelation is uh, significantly different from the Greek of the gospel and letters attributed to John. And so those don't seem to be by the same author. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to focus on the gospel, hopefully I can set aside the <laughs> yeah. puzzling question of who wrote the book of Revelation. 
right because that's a, a subject of its own we can you can you can bring me back sometime if give me sure. some time to think about it and talk sure. about that. but the author of the letters uh refers to himself as the elder right and so that would fit uh, this john the elder uh, mm. scenario quite nicely yeah so i guess almost equally if not more important than who was sort of where and when and and what that context might inform us about sort of some of the the goals and challenges that the author was facing yeah yeah so there too we can say we don't know or we can look at church tradition and say oh tradition says ephesus that must be it uh i'm struck by the fact that the context of the gospel of john right if we start with what the text says uh, seems to be very definitively a jewish context and yet the community that is behind it and that it's written for seems to be one that at the very least has a sense of being part of a broader Israelite tradition, uh, both in the sense of uh, people from Galilee who may have had ties with Judea, but still saw themselves as religiously different from the predominant religiosity in that region. Uh, and then also Samaritans come into the picture, right? Remnants of the, the Northern mm -hmm. tribes from there as well. And so there's, of course, this depiction of uh, the Jews, and we usually put scare quotes around that because uh, Jesus and his followers in the gospel, with the possible, you know, with the exception of, say, the Samaritan woman and some of those people are Jewish, right? Everybody that features is an Israelite at the very least until we get to uh, Pilate, who then when the issue is brought before him, he's like, am I a Jew? You know, you settled it. I don't mm -hmm. even know what you, you know, what's the issue here? And so the context seems to be a group that is not welcome, uh, perhaps because of their view of Jesus, uh, perhaps because of their inclusion of Samaritans and others uh, from a greater Israel into their community. But they seem not to be welcome in the synagogue, right? There are these references to being cast out of the synagogue, which is a term mm -hmm. that we get a few times in John and not elsewhere in the New Testament. And that seems to reflect something of this community's experience. And so I think there's, on the one hand, there's sometimes a geographic re uh, reference, the Jews might be the Judeans. Sometimes it's the Jews as in when we say, you know, the Americans invaded or the Americans have passed a law as like, well, I didn't, you know, so <laughs> yeah. it's not everyone, you know, it's uh, the mm -hmm. leadership. Uh, sometimes it's stereotyping, but I think sometimes it's ironic, right? Because I think the leaders of the synagogue are uh, seeking to define Judaism in a way that excludes, uh, perhaps understandably, belief in a crucified Messiah. Uh, doesn't fit naturally within that framework. Mm -hmm. And so I think the author may be using it somewhat ironically. And yeah. so is embracing Israel while saying that, you know, those who've defined themselves and not us as the Jews, you know, they can, they can have the term, they're welcome to it. Right? Yeah. Um, so the, the Gospel of John will sometimes get accused of being either anti-Semitic itself or rather careless in a way that can lead people in anti-Semitic directions after itself. So what exactly 
Yeah, we, we, you talked about it a little bit, but what exactly does the Jews mean? Because sometimes where uh, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, he's saying, you Samaritans worship what you don't know, but you know, we Jews worship what we do know. And we get positive statements about the Jews. And then sometimes, you know, Jesus is calling the Jews uh, the children of Satan because they do the works of Satan. And, and the, so the, this word, the Jews, seems to have a positive and very strongly negative associations with it and sometimes it even has seems to have different meanings so so what's what's going on with all of that yeah uh i mean i think it it reflects you know if you if you imagine someone who let's say has been driven out of an evangelical context um, and generalizes <laughs> about the evangelicals sure yeah <laughs> and you could very easily see that happening let's say in a you know uh, you know, fundamentalist Baptist context or something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, when this person starts talking about the evangelicals, you know, someone like, let's say, you know, Jim Wallace comes along and is like, well, hang on a minute, you know, there were, um, yeah. Yeah. You know. And so there's, there's always risk in labeling. There's certainly a, a greater propensity and willingness than I would say we should have in the present day, uh, but there's a greater willingness in, the ancient Mediterranean context that's reflected in the New Testament to generalize. Right? Mm. Uh, and so you have people groups, you know, I mean, even, you know, statements about Gentiles, right? Um, mm. Even those who are open to the possibility that there might be a few righteous ones among them would still talk about the Gentiles, right? The nations, you know, the other nations. Uh, but I, so I think, you know, the, the, the possibilities that you mentioned are important. To, it's important to mention both and to distinguish them. I think, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it may be theoretically possible, and there may even be some documented instances of, of Jews being anti-Semitic or something mm -hmm. like that. But I think what we're really dealing with is, you know, lack of caution and someone who, uh, without excusing them for doing so, right, because with hindsight, we, we may see things more clearly. But this author left as a legacy to Christianity language that once it was out of the hands of of a group of Jews and other Israelites who'd been excluded from the local synagogue and were using the term ironically and became part of the legacy and heritage of Gentile Christians who found it very easy to talk about the Jews as those other people and not mm -hmm. in this way as you know well you know actually we're talking about a group that is also our own heritage but yeah and even in some so, sense ourselves yeah yeah, in some sense ourselves, as Jesus does when talking with the Samaritan woman, right? Yeah. And so that language, you know, on the one hand, it's hard to fault an ancient author for not foreseeing where a religious tradition might end up. The author seems to have no interest in Gentiles, per se, right? It's not even clear that this is a, a group that has taken even the first steps in the direction of, you know, where Paul had been taking things. Right. None of the issues about observance of observance of the Jewish law that we see come up in Paul's writings and in some of the synoptic gospel uh, comes up in John. And right. So There's no argument about food laws, right. no arguments about yeah. circumcision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a famous article about that. actually it's not it's not famous. It deserves to be more famous than it is, uh, but it's got a great title um, and it's uh, by Lloyd Gaston. It's called uh, Lobsters in the Fourth Gospel. <laughs> but just because you know not kosher but it's just you know was mm -hmm. a, a funny way of approaching the, the the fact that the 
Gospel of John doesn't seem to be concerned with those things. And if it's not concerned with those things, as part of this Jewish movement that eventually comes to be known as Christianity, that probably means that they're not dealing with that. They're not sort of bringing in non-Jews, or at least non-Israelites at this point, people who don't observe Jewish law. What, what about the Gospel of John has a couple asides or explainers that seem to be things that maybe a Jewish person would have known as obviously true, like, oh, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, I think almost every Jew might have known that sort of thing, or a, an interpretation of a couple, you know, Aramaic phrases here or there. Do, does that suggest that it was for a, that there was at least some mind of explaining things for non-Jewish audience, or is that just like a, a, perhaps a diaspora audience might not know those sorts of things? Yeah, I, I was actually uh, going to suggest precisely what you did, that, um, I mean, it's possible that there, there started to, you know, others have started to be included, and especially if this gospel goes through a process of editing, then at some point it may well move beyond that, those initial roots. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how this community's life unfolds is something that involves a fair amount of speculation, um, but at the very least involves taking the gospel and letters of John, which seem to be from you know, the same community at the very least, if not the same author, and figuring out what order to put them in. And people have done that in different ways and come up with different scenarios. Uh, but it, it, I think those explanations, if you have on the one hand, you know, a broader, you know, you have Galileans, you have Samaritans, and then eventually the group moves into the, you know, you know somewhere outside of, of Palestine uh, into a probably Greek speaking area, then you need to explain Aramaic terms uh, you might need to say things that in context might have the narrow meaning of, you know, Judeans have no dealings with Samaritans. Whether that was true, if you were a Judean and somebody else was a Samaritan and your neighbors living in Rome or in Ephesus or somewhere else, uh, we, we don't know necessarily, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't get a clear sense of that. Uh, but even if, even if certain things were generally the case, uh, they may not have been such as consistently as they might have been, you know, in, in the homeland as it were. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so now let's talk about um, John the Baptist. So what, what role does John the Baptist play in the fourth gospel? And why is there seemingly kind of more emphasis on um, Jesus's superiority to uh, John the Baptist? Um, because in the other synoptic gospels, uh, the John the Baptist will be portrayed, you know, somewhat positively, and um, we get some events of his life, but the Gospel of John seems to kind of go a little bit extra out of its way um, to just make sure that John the Baptist is put in his proper place relative to Jesus. So, so what's going on with that, and, and what, what, what that might tell us about the context? Yeah, so I'm actually really excitedly looking forward to uh, spending the next academic year. Uh, I'm going to have a sabbatical coming up. Uh, working on a, a project related to uh, the historical figure of John the Baptist, as well as a bit about his reception in later tradition. Mm -hmm. And you know, really is a fascinating figure. And one of the things we get a, a sense of from the Gospel of John is that there was a group around John that did not immediately, uh, and maybe did not at all, uh, embrace Jesus as the 
natural successor to John, uh, did not embrace Jesus' movement. And there are several things that are fascinating about the Gospel of John, and that might give us clues about the authorship and the context. One is that it focuses all this attention on John the Baptist and is adamant that Jesus is superior. And on the one hand, places those words on the lips of John the Baptist, right? He must increase, I must decrease. And yet, one of the reasons why there's all this debate about the historicity of the Gospel of John is that you, know, you read through John chapter 3, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and by the time you get to the end of that, you'll, you're looking at the footnotes in your Bible, and it's telling you, yeah, some translations end the quote here, some translations end the quote here, because it seems, to, it seems like now we're listening to the narrator of the Gospel, but yeah. the style hasn't changed, right? Jesus right. and the narrator speak in the same way. And then later in that chapter, we've got John the Baptist, and then probably the narrator again, right? The one who is from above is above all. The one who's of the earth is, you know, yeah, it's like above, below, light and darkness. You know, it's, it's all this kind of characteristic language is woven throughout the gospel and is not unique to any one voice within the gospel. And so we have good reason to be suspicious that the author is, you know, possibly with Jesus as well, but certainly with John, is placing emphatic statements on John's lips that the historical John the Baptist most likely did not give, because had he done so, there probably wouldn't have been the issue in the time mm -hmm. in which this gospel was written that apparently there was. So that's part of the context, but there also seems to be a connection between maybe the author or the author's community, members of the author's community, and not just some opposing group that is centered on John the Baptist, but this group seems to have a connection, this Christian group, if we want to call it that, um, seems to have a connection with the John the Baptist movement. And so on the one hand, we have Jesus encountering some of the disciples for the first time, not in Galilee, not along Lake Tiberias, but in the circles around John the Baptist, right, in connection with his movement. And we have Jesus engaging in actions and starting his activity while John is still carrying out his activity. So he's not in prison yet. You know, we don't have any of that. And so that, you know, there are all kinds of fascinating possibilities that, that emerge when you uh, recognize that there might be some historical information there, right? And mm -hmm. so when it comes to the historicity of John's gospel, I think that we need to be cautious, you know, particularly when it comes to like the words of characters, treating them as though they are the exact words or even you know, precise paraphrase of things that people said. But when it comes to timing and chronology and geography and the general gist of things, uh, there, may be, there may be a lot more there that historians can use than sometimes uh, has, has been felt to be the case, uh, mm -hmm. apart from in, you know, fairly conservative circles. Yeah, so we, we get some information, I think, also from the Book of Acts that there was seemingly maybe even a movement that was still centered around John the Baptist that was going for a while, and maybe even thought of him as the Messiah or, or, or something like that. Was there sort of a, a John the Baptist-ism that was sort of growing and parallel and perhaps even in competition with uh, Christianity? There seems to have been. Mm -hmm. And... The earliest indications that we get of this are places like the Gospel of John and then uh, in Acts, right, where there are apparently people in Ephesus who've been baptized with John's baptism, but are not connected with the Jesus movement. 
Mm-hmm. And, and nor, tells, nor are they in Judea either. Right. Mm-hmm. And that tells us something important about John the Baptist, right? I mean, the depictions you sometimes get of him in movies where he looks like you know, <laughs> a, a homeless person that's <laughs> sort of shouting on the street corner. I don't know of any person who looks like that and has or is the equivalent of that in our society uh, who has you know, disciples in another country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I think we've misrepresented John in a lot of important ways, right? This is somebody who is influential, right? The, the people in power are paying attention to him and mm-hmm. his movement is, is spreading, right? Uh, as we carry on with Christian literature, right? There are texts like the Pseudo-Clementine uh, texts, right, which were probably from Rome, but reflect the Jewish Christian movement. And they refer to uh, people who were persuaded that John was the Christ. Uh, but mm-hmm. whether most of the John the Baptist movement thought of him in those terms is, is less clear. One group that we've already mentioned that focuses on John the Baptist is the Mandaeans, right? So they don't hold Jesus in high regard. They view him as somebody who had come to John for baptism, uh, wanting to be his disciple, and John was uh, was not immediately willing, not because he thought he wasn't worthy to baptize Jesus, but because he thought he would probably cause trouble and would be bad news. Mm-hmm. And so it's a fascinating, you know, sort of configuration of beliefs. It's really quite unique. So, so the Mandaeans have some anti-Christian polemic, maybe. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but they hold John in high esteem. Uh, not as their founder, but they view him as one of their own. And immersion in running water uh, in Mandaic, which is a dialect of Aramaic, it's living water, right? Mm-hmm. Just like you get in the Gospel of John. Uh, so immersion in living water and running water is their central ritual, right? And anyone who's curious, who's listening to this, probably is already on YouTube. And so uh, oh, just open another tab and Google Mandaian baptism. And you can see what this uh, what this ritual entails as it's practiced today. So this is another group that has has a, a certain central place for John the Baptist, mm-hmm. and it's been suggested that they might, in some way, be connected with that movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, what do you think are the the historical connections between Mandaism and and the historical John the Baptist? Because you mentioned they're they're speaking Aramaic. And, and they live in southern Iraq, or at least in our times, and seemingly for a while. Um, so that would at least suggest that they got their language from sort of the Holy Land and brought it over to Mesopotamia. What, what are the, you know, what, what do you think are the connections there? Yeah, well, in order to speak Aramaic, that wouldn't necessarily be the case, right? Um, Aramaic was, first and foremost, the language of uh, Babylonia, the Mesopotamian mm-hmm. And so it's the language, for instance, of the Babylonian Talmud. And to a large extent, uh, Mandaic as a dialect of Aramaic uh, is similar to the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, but on the other hand, there are words, right? Uh, so my collaborator in the uh, Mandaian Book of John translation project, uh, Charles Heberl, has done work on this. Uh, there are words that seem to reflect uh, an origin that is you know, in the Western sort of Aramaic speaking area, and maybe even influence of Hebrew and things like that. And so there are reasons in their language, not the fact that the mere fact that they speak a dialect of Aramaic, but uh, specific characteristics of the language mm-hmm. do suggest that. And then there, there's the fact that they focus so much attention on 
not just John the Baptist. Uh, they talk about water in which one is baptized as jo a Jordan. And so they use that terminology. But the fact that they set these stories in Jerusalem and other than places that are local to them in Mesopotamia, the only other place that they really focus a lot of attention on is Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And they even at one point blame the destruction of Jerusalem on the persecution of you know, Mandaeans, right? Referred to mm -hmm. as disciples, right? Yeah. Um, people who are part of this movement. And so I can't see that belief emerging somewhere else, at least not as readily as I can see it happening in connection with the John the Baptist movement. And so most likely, and feel free to ask me in a year's time once I've been working on this project and uh, maybe you have had a chance to really dig into <laughs> some of the really fine details of this. But it seems to me that at the very least, what one can say is that Mandaism relates to John the Baptist the way the non-commodity texts relate to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we might not want those to be our, our main, much like our exclusive sources when it comes to like the historical Jesus. Uh, we don't get the impression from our earliest sources, which we're fortunate to have that Jesus was a Gnostic. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem to me that John was sort of teaching Gnosticism in the form which we later encountered it. And yet on the other hand, one of the questions I hope to spend some time working on in the coming years, why is it that it's in the circles around John, both immediate and one step removed, that Gnosticism emerges, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it that it's around John the Baptist and then also around Jesus that we get these things? And of course, Jesus is that, you know, connected mm -hmm. with John the Baptist. And so it's not clear that that's a separate thing. What is it about what John is proclaiming, what he's doing that at the very least, could be embraced by those who wanted to take it in that direction? Um, or is it entirely something that comes about later? Uh, there are a number of sources that connect the origins of Gnosticism with Simon Magus. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And there are church sources which connect him with a figure named Josephus and suggest that they were connected with the John the Baptist movement. And so it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And what, if anything, is historical there? don't know, but it's a, it's a question that's worth asking because the question of where Gnosticism comes from, like what prompts people to come up with the precise configuration of beliefs that we encounter in a whole bunch of texts and in a whole bunch of places in this time period uh, hasn't been adequately answered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so the Mandaeans have this sort of um, Gnostic cosmology of a, a good high god and then a lower god that's the creator god of this world who's either malevolent or at least ignorant or bumbling or, or something along those lines. Um, uh, how do they interact with um, the god of, uh, do they attribute that bad creator god to the god of the Old Testament? And how mm -hmm. do they interact with sort of the Jewish laws and the Jewish temple system and, and that sort of thing? Yeah. And that, that can connect both with uh, the Mandaeans, but also with the, the Gospel of John and with mm -hmm. the questions about John the Baptist. So just like in some of what are known as like the Sethian texts and you know maybe some of the Valentinian ones that we get uh, from Nag Hammadi and elsewhere, there's this negative view of the creator God. And one of the things that's important in the development of Gnosticism is that it's not just that there is 
an inferior creator. It's that it's the inferior creator is this figure from Genesis. Right? Mm -hmm. And so the same puzzle that we were sort of wrestling with in connection with the Gospel of John also comes up in the connection with Gnosticism, right? How can this movement, how can this phenomenon seem to be Jewish in the sense that it's it it cares about Genesis in this way mm. enough to spend all of this time looking at it and interpreting the text in these ways and yet doing something subversive with them no. and yet be kind of anti-Jewish. Right. right? And so, not to like, the point of attributing, attributing malevolence to the God yeah, of the Jews, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I think I may have an answer to that question, but uh, I won't... Uh, <laughs> that would take us off in a, on a detour. <laughs> but Mandaism, like other forms of Gnosticism, takes an, a negative view of that. And mm -hmm. so it takes a negative view of Jewish law. One of the things that persuades me that there's historical material in the Mandaean texts is that there's a point at which there's a, a depiction of a debate between, you know, a conflict, controversy, argument between John the Baptist and Jesus in the Mandaean book of John. And John accuses Jesus of loosing the Sabbath, which Moses ordained. And loosing the Sabbath is precisely the terminology that's used in Greek, of course, in John 5. But someone who doesn't view what Moses ordained positively shouldn't be making that accusation, right? Right. And so or might, putting, that, uh, putting that accusation on their hero's lips. That's right. Sort of, right. Yeah. And so this might reflect that they're you know, weaving in some materials that actually go back to an earlier phase in the development of this religious tradition, right? Just like you get things uh, that imply a Jewish context and a Jewish identity of Jesus in the Nagamadi texts, even though they take this negative view of Judaism and of, you know, the Jewish scriptures and things like that. And so it's the same kind of thing, right? And it's one of the things that if we didn't have the New Testament gospels might clue us in that, you know what? This seems to have started within Judaism, right, before it became this other thing. Mm -hmm. And we might be just speculating that there could have been a, a Jewish version of this tradition, which, of course, there was. And one that, you know, as well, that was uh, less hostile to Judaism, at least some of the time, and yeah. uh, certainly did not take quite as negative view of the creator God as the Gnostics did. Mm -hmm. But in, a, but in a similar way that Gnosticism gets admixed with Christianity later and creates Gnostic yeah. forms of Christianity, yeah. maybe there was some admixture of Gnosticizing tendencies with John the Baptistism that creates yeah. uh, something like Mandeism. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. And one interesting question which you ask is, you know, how this relates to the temple. And of course, uh, they, they, they actually view John's birth as kind of bad news for the temple. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting because when it comes to the historical John the Baptist, he was proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And that might have put him at odds with what the temple was offering. Mm -hmm. And one thing we note in the Gospel of John is that Jesus performs this action in the temple and predicts its destruction. And he does that at a time when John the Baptist is still active, according to the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. And so that might have been viewed as a message from John the Baptist, right? Jesus is basically, you know, part of this movement. And that might reflect not so much Jesus' independent view of the temple, but John's and his movements, right? Mm -hmm. That a shared, uh, a shared view of impending yeah. doom for the temple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that God is going to offer forgiveness by another means. 
Right, because it, it in the New Testament, the the Jews also seem very, or the the, the, the scare quote Jews seem on red alert for people who speak badly of the temple. Right, that that's one of those things that can get you in trouble quite quickly. Um, and, yeah, it's, and it's central. It's mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it it is central to uh, worship in ways that it's hard for I think most. Jews today, as well as most Christians, to really grasp, right? Because for us, animal sacrifice is not not even part of what we do as worship, right? Mm -hmm. And whether John helped with the transition that allowed Jews and Christians to develop other ways of worshiping after the destruction of the temple and it wasn't rebuilt after the Romans destroyed it, uh, that's an interesting question. But hostility towards the temple, I mean, there was a fair amount of it, at least in terms of thinking that what was going on there wasn't being done correctly. So at the very least, there was an expectation that it might need to be um, reconsecrated, reconsecrated, uh, remade, maybe yeah, a new temple, right? Ezekiel's vision of a, a temple. Or God's presence brought into it in a more real way than it currently was at yeah. the time or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And so the idea that, you know, was, would something like, you know, I will destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it. We get variations of that, right? And John's, of course, says destroy this temple because it's reinterpreting it in terms of Jesus' body and his death and mm -hmm. resurrection. But in the synoptics, we get variations on it again and attempts to distance Jesus from having said that. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in, you know, in one version, it's, he said, I'm, you know, Matthew says, I'm, he said, I'm able to destroy this temple, right? And so even as time goes on, it's like, well, sure, you know, he was able, doesn't mean he's gonna do it. Uh, in Mark's gospel, it's, you know, I will destroy this temple made with hands and three days build another not made with hands. And so the whole question of whether baptism is, is you know, John's movement is both providing an alternative means of atonement and creating a community that understands itself as maybe replacing the temple. Uh, there are all these possibilities that uh, I'm only starting to explore because this is, I'm already talking about a project that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm both thinking a lot about and trying to keep putting off until next year because I have other stuff I'm supposed to finish first. Yeah, yeah. And I think these sorts of questions are are ones that a lot of modern Christians don't, you know, we don't really think too much about the Jewish temple or the lack thereof yeah. in our daily life or, or connected yeah. with our spirituality and theology. But these questions were absolutely central and, and pivotal and even dangerous, I guess, uh, in, in the times of Jesus and John the Baptist. Yeah. So um, now, now let's. Uh, I, I, although I, part of me uh, would love to talk to you about Mandaism for you know another hour. I think uh, um, maybe we can reserve that for another time. Um, actually, you know, I, I, I will ask one more question related <laughs> to them that I can't help. Um, so there, there was always um, 
in early Christianity, there was like the A Logi sect of Christians who were like, wait a minute, this gospel of John is kind of weird. You know, it's got all this logos business going on. We don't know what this is about. Maybe, maybe this is the Gnostics actually wrote this. Maybe Serenthus or, or someone like that wrote this. Or and then there's some people who are like, well, actually, maybe the gospel of John is counter-apologetic against Gnostic Christians. And then, like in the letters of John, we have seemingly strong warnings warnings against docetism, uh, you know, about not believe, you know, you really need to believe that Jesus was flesh. If you don't think he came in the flesh, right, then you're antichrist. And, and there's, so there, there does seem to be this weird interweaving parallel, you know, contrast thing between the gospel of John and Gnosticism in a way that um, the other gospels don't. Maybe, you know, you can kind of see some of that in the works of Paul, too, I guess, that he's making warnings against things that maybe are Gnostic tendencies or Gnostic groups or something like that. But in the Gospel of John, it seems particularly strong. So so what what do you make of that? And and, and how, how does that help us understand the setting of the Gospel of John and, and why it says some of the things that it says? Yeah. And the way I ended up studying the Mandaeans uh, and devoting so much attention to them in recent years wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for starting out at working on the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. So if you study the Gospel of John in, in depth, uh, sooner or later you'll encounter the Mandaeans because it was very popular, sort of the first half of the 20th century, to view them as you know, essentially the remnants of the followers of John the Baptist, and scholars like uh, uh, Richard Reisenstein, uh, who influenced Rudolf Bultmann, uh, who wove this into his commentary and his whole view of Christian origins, <laughs> viewed this as essentially the background to the early Christian movement, right? So you plug this in as what the followers of John believe. And then for Bultmann, John's gospel was sort of demythologizing some of these ideas you know, taking them over, but historicizing them, uh, taking them over from something like Mandaism, in which all that really mattered was this sort of otherworldly figure, right? And may have, may have an impact in this world, but the focus is elsewhere. And it was precisely the attempt in a, an insufficiently critical way to plug them in as the background that led to a backlash that became persuaded they were irrelevant. And that's why I'm going to be working on trying to say, yeah, there's, there's relevance, but it needs to be used critically, right? And yeah. so, mm -hmm. But it's interesting that on the one hand, in the Gospel of John, we have this sort of Logos Christology that's so distinctive, right? Uh, something like incarnation, whatever that means, and maybe we'll want to talk about that. Yeah. I'm guessing you might. Uh, on the other hand, Luke Acts is the other New Testament text that's most interested in sort of John the Baptist. He tells stories about John's infancy, right, which none of the other Gospels does. And in Acts, talks about followers of John, right, and the baptism of John in Ephesus and things like that. And yet, in John, we get, and this is problematic terminology, but it's often referred to as the highest Christology in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And in Luke, right, there's a lot of emphasis that Jesus is, you know, a human being who is, you know, he grows in wisdom and in stature. Uh, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit and accomplishes these things through the power of the Spirit. Uh, he's a man whom God exalted and appointed as Christ. And 
in the book of Acts, we get in connection with Simon Magus, right? That he claimed to be essentially the incarnation of this celestial power, mm -hmm. right? And so was that something that was part of John's movement as, you know, or is this something that some who are connected with John, you know, there was a subset and they took it in this direction? It's, it's hard to say. And again, that's something I'm going to dig into a bit more. But it could be that those two, right, both the very high and very low are different ways of responding to this. One is saying, yeah, no, John is not the light. Jesus is the light, right? And the other is saying that, yeah, you get, you get these weirdos who say this, but we, we reject that entire approach to, to mm -hmm. John the Baptist, to Jesus, to, to anyone. And so we may get, may get a splintering of sort of John's influence, you know, both directly and indirectly by way mm -hmm. of sort of his, his impact in the Jesus tradition. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right, so um, so let's um, move on to Jewish monotheism at the okay. time of uh, the first century AD. Um, so, so this, this is a big question. So, and, and you know, obviously, this is a question that could be expanded to a very long answer. But, but what exactly was Jewish monotheism? How central was it? What did it? possibly include what did it exclude uh etc yeah and as you hinted that's a whole question in and of itself there are some who say yeah judaism was monotheistic more or less in the same sense that it is today and then we'll either say that christians were also monotheists in the same sense or that they departed from their jewish roots in developing their views of jesus and so departed from monotheism there are some who would say that neither Judaism nor Christianity was monotheistic, at least not in the modern sense, and that that's an unhelpful term to apply. And in between, there are those who will say that there clearly was an emphasis on one God that was felt to distinguish Jews from everyone else, more or less, in their time. And so there was something distinctive. And even if it's not exactly what that, uh, what that looks like in our time or in later times, then we need to figure out what it was that distinguished them and what it looked like and get the configuration in the first century right. And so there are disagreements about whether and to what extent Judaism was monotheistic and then whether and to what extent Christianity was and if Christianity ceases to be when it ceases to be. Mm -hmm. And that was actually what led to me uh, turning my attention to the Gospel of John, right? So said I got into this, you know, as a result of wanting to explore my faith. Uh, one of the things that I inherited from, as an assumption from some of the early influences uh, in those years was the view that, you know, the gospels really all ought to kind of say the same thing if they're in the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. And then I took a course on the gospel of John <laughs> and I was like, nope, John <laughs> is genuinely different, right? There's, there's really no denying it. And so it just became important to me uh, both as it was, it was, I was curious and eager to figure it out, but also I wanted to make sense of this. Why is John different? And as I started looking into it, I was deeply dissatisfied with two main answers that I encountered. One of which was you just plant the synoptics in the ground, water them for about half a century, and out springs the Christology of John's gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, Luke's gospel 
is some, some would date it later than John, but it's roughly the same time period. And it doesn't take things in the direction John does. So that's not an adequate answer. And then you get people like Morris Casey, uh, who say that as Christianity gets less and less Jewish, Jesus becomes more and more God. And that didn't work for me because like in the Gospel of John, anything that might be considered divinity ascribed to Jesus is done so in Jewish terms. Mm -hmm. right? and, uh, the, and the Gospel of Luke, which you said seemingly has the most humanly uh, Christology, well, Luke is the most Gentile of all the writers of the New Testament. So that that's a that that kind of is a data point that messes up that trend. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Luke's Luke's gospel is an interesting one because, I at the very least, it's it's not uh, antithetical to Judaism in in any sense. I mean, it has been characterized in that way, and yet there's all this emphasis on Jesus, his family. You know, they're, they're worshiping, they're doing what the law requires. Um, and so, and even Paul is made out to be um, observant of the details of the Jewish law in ways that mm -hmm. some, some are skeptical about and think may not, may not have been the way Paul would have thought of himself. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really rather complicated. And so is this a Gentile who is nonetheless understands himself as having joined a Jewish movement and so is, takes a positive view of these things? It's, it, yeah, uh, that's a whole other question. So, but in any case, yeah. the trend between high, the correlation between high Christology and Jewishness versus Gentileness, I, that, that, that doesn't really seem to, to actually yeah. work. Yeah. And so I think what the, the explanation I came up with, and this is essentially what I explore in uh, my book, first book, John's Apologetic Christology, which was based on my doctoral dissertation, is that the author of the Gospel of John is seeking to defend a view of Jesus that was part of the sort of common heritage of early Christianity, uh, that he does certain things like forgive sins, uh, that he performs healings and sometimes did so on the Sabbath in ways that at the very least uh, some found controversial and accused of being in violation of the Sabbath, even though Jesus pushed back against that and didn't, didn't view it in the same way. And some of the answers that were given early on simply were not, yeah, we're not, we're not doing the trick as it were, right? We're mm -hmm. not, uh, we're not carrying enough weight in order to persuade everyone. And so they did what people always do when their beliefs are under attack or being challenged. Uh, they drew new implications from beliefs they already held. They made new connections. They found new proof texts. And so in the process of defending those beliefs, they also developed. And I think that's why John's gospel, on the one hand, does some very distinctive things with uh, you know, the, the, the divine presence of the, the word, the spirit in the life of Jesus, uh, with the son of man. But on the other hand, all those things have roots in the earlier gospel tradition and earlier Christianity. And mm -hmm. so the question is, what impetus was there to lead the author to develop these things in that way. And I think it was precisely the defense of those beliefs. And so one of the things that was a major aha moment for me, uh, and it was thanks to a, a paper by, um, who was it, Francis Young, uh, gave a paper at a conference and talked about the fact that even when you get into the second century, authors like Justin Martyr, the sheer 
subject, the sheer fact of monotheism, that there is one God, is not an issue, right, mm -hmm. between Jews and Christians, right? right? There's debate about whether certain things are appropriate to say about Jesus, but the idea that there is sort of such a thing as, say, God's word, God's spirit, is not an issue. And so mm -hmm. that really was an aha moment where I said, you know, everybody's assuming that in the Gospel of John, the debates are about monotheism. Right. Because and, modern Christian and Jewish debates will right. center on monotheism yeah. Yeah. and is Christian Trinitarianism monotheism or not monotheism yeah. and those yeah. sorts of things. But there actually isn't that debate either in the Gospel yeah. of John. And I've been doing a series on the Church Fathers. I'm kind of up to the mid to late third century. And all of the Christian apologists who are writing to a Greek audience argue emphatically for monotheism, right? And, and all the Christians who come from a Gentile background who convert to Christianity, they understand that's one of the things that they're leaving behind is polytheism and coming into is monotheism. And it's seemingly a monotheism of God the Father. Um, and, you know, Jesus's relationship to that, that's an interesting question, but the, mono, the monotheos is Jesus's father. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, the reason why my prequel, my uh, second book on this subject uh, has the title it does is because that language is there even in the Gospel of John. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wrote a book called The Only True God. And that phrase comes from uh, John 17, right, where Jesus mm -hmm. prays. And of course, it may be the voice of the, the gospel author, but either way, it says, you know, you know, this is, you know, the prayer that they may know you, right, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Mm -hmm. And so even in the Gospel of John, with all these exalted things that are said, Jesus is the one whom the one God, the only true God, sent. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the author can use that language, whereas certainly modern Trinitarians I don't think would you know certainly don't find that comfortable language to when when biblical Unitarians get in online debates yeah. with Trinitarians that's yeah. certainly one of our favorite verses yeah yeah and so figuring out how you can have these exalted statements and these other ones is really crucial right because there there seems to have been room for some both and types of things in the first century that today seem to most people like either or right yeah so and you start um, with one or the other, right? Then you end up arguing in circles, right? It's like the father is greater than I, but I and the father are one, but the father is greater than I, but I and the father, it's like, yeah. you know, that doesn't lead anywhere. How could the same author say both those things? Mm -hmm. Sorry. So I, I, no, no, that, that's great. Um, so I want a, a, a very relevant follow-up question is um, two powers theology. Uh -huh. um, so I've, I've uh, spent a fair amount of time. I feel like this, this two powers idea and connecting two powers Judaism with early high Christology is a is a common thing in some of the the people that I've talked with recently. Um, I talked with Father Stephen DeYoung, an Eastern Orthodox priest, and he's sort of uh, very highly emphasizing that this two powers theology would have been common in the air at the time of um, early Christianity, and that this helps us understand sort of the transition from a Jewish two powers theology to identifying Jesus as that sort of second power and then tying that in with kind of, you know, a proto-Trinitarianism or something like that. So so what what is two powers theology? What evidence do we have of it showing up where and when and, and how does that relate to uh, the Gospel of John? 
Yeah. So talking about in terms of two powers uh, is using a phrase that comes up in rabbinic literature and it's used polemically, right? Against those who say there are two powers in heaven and it's used in a, a diverse way, right? So just like you get uh, various people being labeled either as Gnostic or as heretic or as thing, it's, it's something that's not clear it had one clear referent, but it seems to correspond to, to some extent, at least with both uh, Gnosticism, but also some things we get in certain strands of Judaism, but which were also a fairly mainstream part of Jewish mysticism. And so may have been less about holding this sort of belief than about some particular way of thinking about those beliefs. So in Jewish mysticism, it's widely held that uh, there is a figure or an aspect of the divine or something like that, that provides a solution to an apparent contradiction that you get in the Jewish scriptures, right? Which is no one can see me and live, right? No one can see God and live. And some, some texts that seem to involve seeing, right? And or, or wrestling or, or what have or wrestling, you. right? Yeah. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, wrestling without seeing. I mean, of course, he didn't exactly, you know, it didn't exactly go entirely in his favor, you know, 100%, but still, right? And it was dark, right? But, you know, <laughs> Ezekiel chapter one becomes an important text in Jewish mysticism. And there it uses this kind of evasive language where Ezekiel sees sort of it's like the you know, like the reflection of the image of the glory of the uh, radiance of the, you know, use these <laughs> multiple things to put some distance. But most, uh, well, I mean, we don't know enough about what everybody thought to know this, but uh, certainly it seems to have been a widely held view across Judaism, right, in a wide array of places and, um, you know, subgroups that God is transcendent in the ways that, you know, particularly within, you know, the Greco-Roman era, it was important to emphasize. And yet God is accessible and active and creating and things like that over, over against Gnosticism, right? And so you get, for instance, in Philo of Alexandria, the development of this idea of the Logos, right? And Philo says, in, in, in a way that's one of my favorite passages in Philo, and because it seems so similar to what we get in the Gospel of John, that the Logos, right, God's word, is neither uncreated like God, nor created like you, but in between the two extremes. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's like, no, that makes <laughs> yeah. no sense. That's gobbledygook. Right? Yeah. But that gobbledygook, right, that, you know, the view was that the boundary between God and everything else is, is a bit more fluid, right? There's this chain of being. Yeah. And that's essentially what you get in Gnosticism as well. It, it's just that even even the church father or well I'll, even the man Arius who's sort of like the most famous heretic of all time, well he was accused of saying that the son was a creature, but yeah. even he would say things, well he's yeah, well he was created by God but not like all the other creatures were. Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. then he creates everything else. So he's like, yeah, he's a creature, but he's not like a creature in the way everything else is. So even 300 years later, you have language that's very much in that sort of in between kind of thing. And, and that seems yeah. to be precisely what gets him in trouble. Yeah. Well, I think there, 
what's going on in that time really is the key to understanding how we get from what we get in the Gospel of John and in Philo and in Jewish mysticism to the things the rabbis are concerned about and the council, you know, the Council of Nicaea and, you know, all these other things. One thing we don't get in ancient Judaism, uh, certainly in New, by New Testament times, is a clear doctrine of creation out of nothing. And so this idea that there can be this blurriness between you know, God and then God's word, which is kind of an extension of God, but can also seem like it's an, you know, can also be called an angel, principal angel, things like that. And they blur into one another. Uh, that's language that's used you know, sort of all across the board in this time. And the fact that it's blurry didn't create problems until probably I'd say the Gnostics start taking that to the extreme and say, well, once you get far enough removed from the Supreme God, then stuff starts to go wrong. And that's how we end up with matter, right? Mm -hmm. But if you compare sort of Gnostic emanations with, you know, say the, you know, some of the, the emanations that are posited, you know, you can get these complex diagrams in like Jewish mysticism and things like that. There are parallels, right? And they seem to be related phenomena. And so what becomes an issue in the intervening years or centuries is drawing a clear dividing line between God and everything else, mm -hmm. right? And really the debate between Ari Arius and, you know, there were a lot of other people besides Arius who held this view, right? I mean, it often gets referred to as Arianism, but, you know, he was just one representative of widely held view. Uh, and his opponents is that they're arguing over the legacy of people like Oregon and others who use this language that, of both divinity and subordination, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this blurry middle ground. And they're trying to pin it down. And the two ways you can pin it down when it's something that is a both and type of conceptuality is either to say, we draw the dividing line between the one God, the Father, and everything else, and everyone else, including Jesus, including the Holy Spirit, including whatever, or you say that there is this, there's some emanation, maybe that happens eternally within a, a Godhead, as you define it, and then you dr draw the defining, dividing line between Jesus and everything else, or between the Holy Spirit and everything else, mm -hmm. and that, I think, is really at the heart of the issue, and the reason why they don't immediately agree, and both sides feel like they are defending the historic Christian tradition is that each of them is defending something that was there in the tradition, right? Uh, but the context has changed so that older answers and older categories and conceptualizations, uh, conceptualities, uh, simply don't seem adequate anymore. No, no. Um, so let's talk about um, Jewish conceptions of agency and, mm -hmm. and how that relates to yeah. um, John's Christology and how John views Jesus's role. So what, what, what was Jewish agency? How could agents represent God? And, and how does John use um, you know, language related to agency in the gospel? Yeah. And agency is one of those categories that runs um, in a spectrum all the way from sort of human prophets and king, you know, the king and books like that, to angels, to this, you know, supreme angel or personified attribute that 
sometimes seems like it too is a separate entity sent by God, and yet seems to blur into God, right? But on the human level, it's it's an axiom of sort of ancient Judaism and you know even pre-exilic Israelite religion that God appoints people and sends representatives. And the whole notion of agency of sending a representative, an emissary, an ambassador, is part and parcel of ancient life to a much greater extent than it is today, because you don't have a way of communicating your will and getting your will done somewhere else other than by sending someone to represent you. Mm-hmm. And so in the absence of mass communication and you know, technology, that's your option. And so the belief was that that God does this. In fact, one of the key differences between Jews and you know, maybe the decisive difference between Jews and others was not whether there are other entities that sort of do the will of God and this of the supreme God in this world and maybe also mess things up from time to time and get into fights with one another and <laughs> can cause some havoc. The question for Jews was, you don't worship those other beings, right? We exclusively worship the one supreme God. But everyone believes that there was this sort of celestial bureaucracy in this time period and that uh, some of the day-to-day stuff gets delegated, whether to beings called angels or to beings called gods or beings called something else. Mm. So, um, and uh, you could treat an eight, you you were, you, you not just could, you should and were expected to treat an yeah. agent basically as if they were the person that they were representing. Um, and that's especially important and true if the, uh, the sender is God himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, so John chapter five is a really good example of, you know, how agency helps us understand some things that otherwise might seem to be in tension with one another. So the, the accusation is that Jesus makes himself equal with God. And his immediate response is, you know, a son or the son does nothing of himself, right? He does what he sees his father doing. And so if he's not doing what his father does, if he's not subordinate to his father, then he's not an obedient son. But an obedient son often is the agent par excellence of the father and does what the father does is, you know, goes into his father's business and uh, carries it on and bears his father's name and all these things. And so if anyone can represent the father and can speak for the father, it is the son. And so the reason we get this sort of functional equality together with subordination, and those two things could coincide, is precisely because of this conceptuality of agency. And I think the defense against the accusation that's offered in John 5 is that it's precisely as obedient son that he can do what his father does, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it's only if he's a, a rebel, an upstart, somebody claiming an authority that he hasn't been given by God, that then his doing what God does, like working on the Sabbath, is blasphemous. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of these super strong disagreement scenes or accusation scenes in the Gospel of John, like, John 5 or John 8 or John 10 or even the crucifixion or the trial narrative itself are are not so much about whether Jesus just sort of 
is the ontological being God or not, or whether he can claim that for himself, but whether or not he is a dutiful agent or a kind of a boasting braggart, uh, self-proclaimed um, representative or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And part of part of what makes for some additional blurriness that the church spent the subsequent centuries trying to figure out is that we not only get the blurriness of agency and the blurriness of like a principal divine agent or personified attribute that functions in these ways, but we get this union of the two mm -hmm. in that the word, right, which is the sort of celestial agent, agent or personified, you know, attribute or verbalization of God, merged with, right, sort of embodied in the life of Jesus. Right? And so when you start blurring those, you're going to create some, some complexities. Mm -hmm. And I think the author of the Gospel of John probably, just like he didn't foresee the potential for a large, a predominantly Gentile Christianity to develop anti-Semitism and carry out pogroms and do all kinds of atrocious things and, and use his text as justification. I don't think this author trying to, you know, draw on ideas and flesh out possible impl new implications in order to respond to objections could see where this tradition and this trajectory might end up, especially mm -hmm. one, once one started saying, we need a clearer dividing line between God and everything else. And you can't draw that right down the middle of the Logos. And so the Logos is going to have to go on one side or the other, mm. hence the, the later debates. I think that John, in depicting Jesus in that way, in the context of first century Judaism, saying, you know, the word became flesh, is not necessarily a different kind of statement than saying, you know, the spirit descended and remained on him. These were different ways, right? Word, spirit, wisdom were all ways that people spoke about God in God's sort of making God's self available, right? Mm -hmm. Coming coming near, being accessible, right? Being able to catch a glimpse or God being active and engaging, uh, deigning to allow a, a glimpse of the unglimpsable as it were. And so it may be that in developing that Logos Christology, you know, Logos is a different term than spirit, but ultimately the, the idea that Jesus embodies sort of the, the presence and activity of God in and through this human life seems to be there as part of Christianity from the beginning. John just yeah. does something rather distinctive with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so regarding the word God itself or theos in Greek, yeah. um, so the you know the gospel of john either applies that word to jesus maybe only once at, at near the end at thomas's confession of my lord and my god or or maybe it's sort of there in john 1 18 depending on which manuscript tradition you like and and then maybe you know if jesus just kind of is the logos then the logos is being called one in the first verse and stuff like that so um how, how does the word theos itself relate to jesus and 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 what's going on with that yeah so i mean i think there's there's clearly a broader use and we get that reflected to some extent in John 10, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I said, you were all gods. Yeah. But you read the Dead Sea Scrolls and they're perfectly okay. I mean, they are 
as monotheistic as any Jews in this time period. But, you know, angels as, you know, also potentially being called gods and things like that, you know, sons of God. It's very terminology for a variety of beings that ultimately owe their existence on the one supreme God who's the source and creator of all. And that supreme God is alone to be worshipped through things like animal sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, the existence of other, other entities, some of which are distinct from the one God uh, or further removed from the one God, is, is simply a given. <clears throat> and so I think the key question that doesn't get asked often enough is, is the word, you know, is the logos a person? prior to John 1, 14. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I certainly ask that question a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you, you, you know that not everyone does. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good question, right? It's, uh, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, there's reason to think that we're dealing with a, a personification, right, of the one God up until that point. But once we bring in the ascent and descent language related to the son of man, and that sort of the possible, you know, pre-existent Messiah, which again is not an is not a development that John innovates, but John may have been the first to take it literally in a Christian context, right? In First Enoch, uh, in other places, you get the sense that the Messiah may be pre-existent, which may just mean you know, sort of is is prepared by God. Right? God has this foreordained, and so it's you know what exists in in God's mind is more real than anything else. And so uh, how, how real or how literal that was for any particular author, it's hard to say. But the author of the Gospel of John takes that language literally because there were people saying the kinds of things that we get in John 9. We know God spoke to Moses. This person, we don't know where he came from. Mm -hmm. Who needs him, right? And so the emphasis on Jesus having access to heavenly things in a way that no other human being does is is important to john right to emphasize it there's a reason you know if you've already got moses to believe in jesus as well right yeah but how does that ascent and descent descent ascent whatever's going on you know we get the ascent and descent of the son of man and the descent and ascent of the logos and how do those relate to one another right? mm -hmm. and that's something that john's gospel doesn't answer right no. uh, it raises the question uh, and leaves the reader with a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, speaking of all this ascending and descending, uh, what exactly is the chronology that you think best sort of makes sense of wh who's ascending, who's descending, how many times have we ascended and descended, and, 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 who, and who exactly is doing the ascending yeah. and descending? Yeah. So one possibility, you know, that, again, I need I need to dig into this as a separate topic. Uh, it's one that I, I think I mentioned tantalizingly at some point yes, and have clearly not come back to yeah. and have long overdue to. But the question of whether the sort of the descent of the spirit is also the descent of the Logos is also the descent of the son of man. You know, so is, is John essentially saying that the figure that is, is kind of like the the persona of the pre-existent Messiah mm -hmm. is none other than this sort of supreme, you know, heavenly agent that right. 
you know, also this, this right hand to God, this yeah, this second to God and yeah. flirting with God Himself figure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I need to puzzle out is whether this kind of son of man expectation and the kinds of things that we get in 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 the Jesus tradition, which at the very least can sound like it's talking about another figure. At the very least, it's it's not saying as directly as could have been. Well, you know, when I sit on my glorious throne, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, when the son of man comes, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Is that, you know, I mean, you could have that this is like the pre-existent soul of the Messiah or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then is, you know, uh, united with sort of the spirit of God, maybe even before the Messiah is born or things like that. But that gets messy, right? Yeah. There's there's this view that human beings have a celestial doppelganger, right? You know, um, you can get that in Acts, right? When it's like, they, it's like, Peter, you know, he's free. It's like, oh, it must be his angel, right? Because mm -hmm. there's this sense that there's this heavenly counterpart. And so is, you know, is essentially that, is it that the supreme personified divine attribute of God's word, wisdom, spirit, if everyone has a celestial doppelganger, the Messiah is one, right? Because the Messiah is more exalted than anyone else, is none other than the word, right? Right. Uh, so that's one and, and that in origin you get that. I mean, in origin, well, origin thinks that everybody's soul used to be right. up in heaven yeah. seemingly and comes yeah. down at an appointed time and maybe even comes down multiple yeah. times. Yeah. And that that Jesus just had this soul that was especially logos unified, and, yeah. and that his soul comes down at the appointed time. But that, that, that in some ways is unique, but it's also in some ways not any different than anyone else getting born. Right. All right. Yeah. So and I don't if, know. I don't know. I think that might be more of a Neoplatonic thing that kind of yeah. is later, yeah. like third century, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. you know, first century. But yeah. I, it's, it's hard to know exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I guess one another thing that I, I saw, well, one, one possibility that you suggested that's interesting is so a, a lot of the a lot of the apocalyptic literature in Judaism at the time has someone ascending into heaven, and that's the opportunity for revelation, right. and then they're sort of sent back down and then they can disseminate this um, revelation, and that happens to people like Moses or the ascension of Isaiah or Enoch or, you know, all, all sorts of uh, uh, Jewish figures are, are sort of given this role in various um, apocryphal texts and stuff like that. Is the is the possibility that when John talks about Jesus, no one has no one has ascended except he who has descended. Is, is there perhaps some understanding that Jesus, kind of prior to most of the events in the Gospel of John, but perhaps once he's an adult, has had an, a heavenly ascent and a descent, and is then doing his ministry, communicating the revelation from that experience. Uh, that's that's a possibility, right? So it's there's this fascinating uh, later tradition in Judaism, right? In the uh, the e sort of Enoch tradition, in which Enoch gets identified with the sort of supreme principal agent or personified uh, divine attribute, uh, often referred to as Metatron, mm -hmm. who's central to the controversy over two powers, and it's it's not that anybody disputes that there is such a figure. It's just how does this figure relate to the deity? Is this a separate 
subordinate figure or mm -hmm. an extension of God's personhood or a second figure, but who's either co-equal or at least comparable, which seems to mess with monotheism. And that too, I think, reflects that time period when you know, we get the debates about Christology that lead up to the Council of Nicaea. It's asking questions that are framed in a way that earlier generations didn't feel the need to, to, um, to view them. So is Enoch, does he ascend to heaven and realize that he's been this son of man all along? Does he ascend and then unites with his heavenly doppelganger? Does he ascend, get to know his heavenly doppelganger and then return and there's a connection between the two? Any or become fully energized in some sort right. of way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that any of those might make sense if you posited something like it behind the scenes of uh, Jesus as we get to know him on the pages of the New Testament. Uh -huh. And so another theme that hasn't been explored adequately is the idea of Jesus as, as a mystic, essentially, right? As one who experiences some sort of union with the divine, and or union with some reality, you know, sort of close to, close to God uh, and the spirit, those kinds of things. The spirit yeah. or the word, or perhaps the spirit yeah. and the word are really just two names of the same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, because there, because there is this language of the the spirit dwelling in Jesus and remaining yeah. in Jesus, and also um, being filled without measure. Right. Like yeah. we have. Old Testament figures like Elijah gets a measure and then Elisha asks for more, a double measure or something like that yeah. of the spirit right. that Elijah yeah. had. And then Jesus is indwelt by the spirit without measure, seemingly sort of in that, right. like he's like those Old Testament prophets, but like extra even more to the fullest right. extent. And so is that a human who is just super empowered by the spirit? Or is, you know, and or is the spirit the one that's talking when he is saying that I've descended, right? Is that like the voice of the spirit in the human right. Jesus saying that I've descended and now I get to talk through this human or? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so one, one possibility, which again, the church rejected, you know, it's sort of particularly at Chalcedon mm -hmm. uh, saying that, you know, the divine and human are, you know, they're not blurred, but they are sort of united. Otherwise, you could have that it's essentially it's the, the celestial figure is sometimes speaking, and that's whose voice we, we hear. And at other times, it's like, you know, the one who they, you know, Jesus is adamant, you know, you rejected me, a man who told you what he heard from God, right? Yeah. Which sounds, you know, very human and much mm -hmm. like any other agent might say, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I think the truth of the matter is, you know, is that John's gospel doesn't pin this down. It doesn't tell us how to fit underdetermined together. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't give us a systematic theology that explains how to fit its various language, bits of language together. But I think putting it in its ancient context can help us make sense of it. Uh, there's still some blurriness. Some of that blurriness isn't a problem in the sense that, you know, it's a problem for us, but wasn't for the author and the earliest readers saying both of these things simultaneously was simply part of their worldview and mm -hmm. we're inconsistent in all kinds of ways that we don't see but 
people coming after us centuries from now, if they read what we write, will say, how could they not see that there's a tension here? But we have blind spots. And so it may be that we can't simply give an answer that is the same as the one a first century author would have given, because we're inevitably asking at least slightly different questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think the, the last subject that I want to ask you a little bit about is the prologue. Yeah. Um, so, so the, it, it, do you, I guess just a first quick authorial question. Do you think that the, the prologue was written by the same person who wrote the bulk and the material, or is it sort of in the same way that there's an appendix that was seemingly added by uh, an editor or a team of editors? Is, is the prologue a, uh, whatever the, a, a pre-appendix or something like that added by, by someone else? What, do you have any views or strong thoughts on that? I'm somewhat, uh, I'm somewhat agnostic on some of those yeah. matters. It's been suggested everything from that this is kind of the last piece in the puzzle to be added as a sort of a prologue. And of course, it is a prologue in terms of how it functions. Mm -hmm. To this being an edited version of a pre-existing hymn that maybe goes back before the gospel, and the uh -huh. author sort of appends to the front, but edits to weave in some some additional material. And I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, yeah. Not that anybody could be 100 percent sure, but I'm not even like strongly persuaded one way or the other. I do think there's a discernible structure and that if say for instance john the baptist and the the things about him have been inserted in the first 18 verses of the gospel of john that it reflects that structure because john appears in that structure in interesting places right twice yes. essentially yeah and i think part of that reflects that we have a kind of inverted step parallelism right it starts with the word who's with God and is God. And it ends with the son in the bosom of the father, which basically means sort of the son at the right hand of the father. And I think what it's doing is it's saying that exalted status of Jesus is okay, right? The human Jesus is okay, because as you just had in verse 14, the sort of, the sort of turning point, the word became flesh. Mm -hmm. And so the word has returned to where it always was and kind of has taken Jesus, the human Jesus along with it, as it were. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure the gospel author would be happy with that way of putting it, but um, I think that captures sort of the gist of it. Mm -hmm. And so one possible understanding of the prologue is that when the word becomes flesh, that is describing the same event that is then later narrated in terms of the spirit descended and remained on him. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who thought that whatever heavenly being or reality or uh, power was present in the life of Jesus, was present from his baptism. Mm -hmm. And the Gospel of John may have subscribed to that. And that may, that opens some interesting possibilities. Yeah. So uh, one in, in among biblical Unitarians, uh, the quickest way to get us arguing with ourselves is to ask us how we understand the prologue of John, which probably isn't surprising. Yes. But there's sort of, there's two branches. One that's basically like, the prologue is basically the the pre-human career of the word and it's being personified and then you know word becomes flesh as sort of yeah. you know the beginning of jesus's life or something along those lines and then there are some people that are like you know it kind of seems like it's talking about jesus the whole time 
right? And that makes sense of us skipping back and forth between talking about the logos and talking about John yeah. the Baptist. Because if we're talking about, okay, but way back in the beginning, the Genesis beginning, you know, everything's being made by the word. Oh, also John the Baptist. Okay, back to Genesis. Oh, also John the Baptist and back to Genesis. That's sort of a weird sequence. And some people are like, you know, actually, I think if from pretty much the beginning of the prologue, it's a way of summarizing the the events of Jesus and that what it says of the logos is what it's saying of the events of Jesus's career. Do you, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that sort of uh, train of thought. Yeah, I'm going to suggest what I think might be a third option. That's mm -hmm. kind of saying it's both. Yes, I okay, that, good. <laughs> yeah, I think that the first half is, is really about the word and the activity of the word and the word is in the world right? The, the word of the Lord came to, right? It's this constant refrain throughout the Jewish scriptures and, you know, came to his own and his own did not, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the word came to the, the people, God's own people, and was not received, was not welcomed, was not embraced. And then you get the word became flesh. And so the word is sort of embodied in the life of Jesus. And it's that same word. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing the author is doing is saying that on the one hand, the exalted status of Jesus is justified because he embodies that word in a way that no, you know, to a greater extent than anyone else has. And on the other hand, the reactions to Jesus, the negative reactions, are what you'd expect as reactions to the word, because that's how they were foreshadowed in the right. events of the yeah. Exodus, and yeah. now they're sort of echoed yeah. again in the life of Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's the author is actually placing those two things in parallel. Yes. And that that's part of how the prologue uh, conveys its message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's basically my understanding as well, is that it's doing this very complicated dance of talking about the basically the entire history of the cosmos up until Jesus and talking about Jesus's life at the same time. And the thing that connects those two threads is that the Logos was at work back then and the Logos was at work in Jesus and they're are these parallels, uh, the sort of recapitulation or something like that. And that it, the reason why it's weird and hard to understand is it's telling two stories in, in the same phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess we should, we should wrap up pretty soon. Do you have any sort of last thoughts or, or last words um, uh, that, that we haven't talked about yet? No, I mean, we've covered a lot and obviously there's still more that could be said. And so I'll just say that, you know, if anybody's interested in my thoughts on the prologue on John's Christology, that, you know, I've written a number of things on this, uh, uh, some articles, I uh, also have some uh, reference work articles on monotheism and things like that, uh, that have been written since then, uh, some of which you can find online, right, my, my university has a, a sort of an institutional repository where some of some of my articles and things like that can be found. And so anyone who's interested in these topics is you know, I'd encourage them to read some of those things I've written. Uh, I'm not necessarily right about my conclusions, but if you're interested in these topics, you'll hopefully find them useful food for thought. And then I'm on social media, right? I have a blog and I'm on Twitter and other various places, all of them as religion prof is one word. And so anyone who's interested in you know, talking about these things can probably tell from our conversation today, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, uh, that I enjoy talking about them. And so uh, I'm happy to connect on social media and uh, talk more about these things.
Great, I'll provide uh, links to all those things in the description of this video to help make it easier for people to find that. And uh, hopefully maybe sometime we'll talk again, whether more about uh, Paul and Pauline Christology or the Mandians or who, who, who knows what else we, we, we might want to discuss. But I, Sounds I've, great. Re I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, enjoyed it as well.